Did the knights rescue the kender? Marcus asked. Yes, said Lilith. We have him safe and sound. What about his friends, the others on the bounty list? The half-elf, the dwarf, the elf, and the knight have been taken before the Lord in the Hall of Justice. I stayed to listen to some of the trial. The Lord seemed surprised to see a Salamnic knight, but I think he was pleased as well. He tried to do what he could to help them, but that strange fellow, the one in the cloak, intervened and started whispering in the Lord's ear. You say they're on trial. What crime are Sturm and the others supposed to have committed? Brian asked curiously. Remember the bounty list, said Lilith. Ah, right, said Brian. Killing High Lord Verminard. No one's supposed to know that, of course, Marcus said. But a couple of bounty hunters got drunk in a bar down by the old docks and told the tale. And now the story's all over town. There's other news, too. Not good, I take it, said Lilith. According to Alfredo, his lordship's clerk, Lilith explained for Brian's edification, Alfredo's also one of us. His lordship has been secretly slipping out of the city by night to meet with someone. Add to this the way his lordship has been acting, nervous and edgy and unhappy, and Alfredo decided to follow him, find out what was going on. He took an enormous risk, said Lilith. To give Alfredo credit, said Marcus Riley, he suspected his lordship of doing nothing more terrible than cheating on his lordship's lady wife. Our friend found out different. His lordship went to meet with representatives of a dragon high lord. Blessed Gillian, Lilith gasped in horror, her hand over her mouth. We were right. From what Alfredo could gather, our lord is negotiating with the new high lord of the Red Wing, a hobgoblin named Toad. If Tarsus surrenders peacefully, the city will not come under attack. The high lord is lying, said Brian bluntly. They made the same false promise at Vingard. They pretend to negotiate, but it's just a ruse they use until their forces are in place. When they are, they will break off negotiations and attack. Brian turned to Lilith. The attack could be only a matter of days away, hours maybe. You are a Salomnic and the daughter of a knight. You will be in grave danger. Come with us. We will take you to a place of safety. Thank you, Brian, said Lilith gently. But I cannot leave the library. You have your mission, and I have mine. The library has been given into my trust. I have vowed to protect the books, and as you say, I am the daughter of a knight, one who keeps her vows. Brian started to press the issue, but she shook her head with a smile and turned back to her friend. Brian saw that nothing he could say would sway her, and he loved her more for her courage and her honor, even as he wished with all his heart she were not so honorable nor so courageous. Lilith and Marcus were discussing Brightblade and his friends. Half the group is still in the Red Dragon Inn, including a cleric of Meshachal and a cleric of Paladine. Those old gods of long ago, people are claiming to be their clerics? Brian asked. Lilith and Marcus looked very solemn, and Brian realized suddenly they were serious. Oh, come now. You don't think they are... I mean, you can't believe... In the true gods, of course we do, Lilith said crisply. After all, we worship one of those gods ourselves. We aesthetics are clerics of Gillian, pledged to his service. Brian opened his mouth and shut it again, not knowing what to say. Lilith seemed a sensible young woman, 
and here she was going on about serving gods who had abandoned humanity three hundred years ago. Brian would have liked to question Lilith about her faith, but now was hardly the time for a theological discussion. I saw cloaked and hooded figures hanging about the inn, Marcus added. I'm certain they're draconians, and they're keeping watch on these people. If the High Lord gets hold of a cleric of Paladine and a cleric of Meshackle, We can't let that happen, said Lilith firmly. We must bring the others here to the library. If the city is attacked, this is the one place they might be safe. Marcus, go outside, see if the library is being watched. Marcus nodded and raced up the stairs. Lilith turned back to Brian, resting her hand on his arm. She looked up into his face. You must try to save the knight and his friends. The draconians won't take them to prison. They'll take them to their deaths. Brian put his arm around her and drew her close. I will do anything you ask of me, Lilith. But first, answer me this. Do you believe in love at first sight? I didn't. Lilith said softly, smiling up at him. Until now. They held each other close for a long, sweet moment. Then Lilith sighed deeply and said, You'd better go. I'll stay here to keep an eye on the kender. I'll stay in the library with you, help you defend it. Derek and Aaron can go on this dragon orb mission without me. Lilith shook her head. No, that wouldn't be right. You have your duty and I have mine. She smiled. Her dimple flashed. When this is over, we will share war stories. You'd better hurry, she added. Knowing it was hopeless, Brian gave up trying to persuade her. He shouted for Derek and Aaron, and they made their way through the stacks of books. Castlehoff accompanied them, despite Derek's repeated orders for the kender to return to his reading. My friends are in trouble, aren't they? Tass heaved a deep sigh. I suppose I'll have to go save them. Again. Did I tell you about the time I rescued Caraman from a vicious man-eating stalagmite? We were in this wonderful haunted fortress known as Skullcap. You are not going, Kender, said Derek. Yes, I am human, said Tass. We can't chain him to the stool. He'll only run off if you leave him, Lilith pointed out. You might as well take him with you. That way, at least you'll know where he is. Eventually, Derek was persuaded, though he wasn't happy. Once we return, Burfoot, Derek said, you will continue searching for information on dragon orbs. Oh, I've found that already, said Tass nonchalantly. You did, Derek exclaimed. Why didn't you tell me? Because you didn't ask me, said Tass with grave dignity. I'm asking now, said Derek, glowering. Not very nicely, Tass admonished. Lilith leaned down to whisper something in his ear. Oh, all right, I'll tell you. Dragon orbs are made of crystal and magic, and they have something inside them. I forget, he thought a moment. Essence, that's it, essence of chromatic dragons. Tasselhoff enjoyed the way these words rolled off his tongue, and he repeated them several times with relish, until Derek ordered him sharply to get on with it. I don't know what the essence of a chromatic dragon is, Tass said gleefully taking advantage of the chance to say it all one more time. But that's what's in them. If you can gain control over one of these dragon orbs, you can use it to order dragons to do your bidding, or summon them, or something. How does it work? Derek asked. The book didn't give instructions, Tass replied, irritated at being asked all these questions when his friends were in danger. Seeing Derek frown, he added, 
I have a friend who probably knows all about them. He's a wizard. His name is Raistlin, and we can ask him. No, said Derek, we can't. Did the book say where to find these dragon orbs? It says one was taken to a place called Ice Reach, Tass began. You should really hurry, Lilith interrupted urgently. She had been fidgeting near the door the entire time, glancing nervously up the stairs. We can talk about this when you come back. Your friend the knight has been arrested, and it's likely he's going to be killed. He's not a knight, insisted Derek. But, he added in a more subdued tone, he is a fellow Salomnic. Brian, you're in charge of the Kent... Master Burfoot. He and Aaron started up the stairs. Tasselhoff hung about at the bottom, waiting for Brian. One more kiss, Brian said to Lilith, smiling. For luck? For luck, she said, and kissed him. Then she added wistfully, Have you ever found something you've searched for all your life, only to know that you're bound to lose it, and maybe you'll never find it again? That happens to me all the time, exclaimed Tasselhoff, crowding close to the two of them. I once found this extremely interesting ring that belonged to an evil wizard. It kept jumping me all over the place, first here, then there, then back to here again. I was quite fond of it, only I seemed to have misplaced it. Tasselhoff stopped talking. His story about the ring and the evil wizard was extremely exciting, very interesting, and mostly true. But he'd lost his audience. Neither Lilith nor Brian were listening. Derek called his name impatiently. Brian gave Lilith one last kiss, then got a firm grip on Tasselhoff, and the two ran up the stairs. Lilith sighed and went back to her dusty books. 6. The Rescue Sturm Settles an Argument The Knights and the Kender emerged from the library's secret entrance to find themselves in a snowstorm, a startling change in the weather, for the day had been sunny when they went underground. Large, heavy snowflakes were plummeting down from the sky, obscuring their vision and making walking on the stone streets slippery and treacherous. Though Marcus had been gone only a few moments, his footprints were already being covered up by the fast-falling snow. As Tass said, the snow was so thick they could barely see their noses in front of their faces, and they were startled when a figure suddenly loomed out of the white curtain. It's me, Marcus, he said, raising his hands as he heard the rattle of steel. It occurred to me you'll need a guide to the Hall of Justice. Derek muttered his thanks as he sheathed his sword, and they hurried on through the storm, blinking the snow out of their eyes and slipping on the icy pavement. Though the rest of the world had gone still and silent beneath a snowy blanket, their little part of it was quite lively, for the Kender talked incessantly. Have you ever noticed how snow makes everything look different? I guess that's why it's really easy to get lost in a blizzard. Are we lost? I don't remember seeing that tree before, the one that's all humped over. I think we've taken a wrong turn. Eventually, they came to a street corner and a building that Kender did recognize, though this didn't stop his flow of talk. Look at all the gargoyles. Hey, I saw one of them move. Brian, did you see that very fierce-looking gargoyle move? Wouldn't it be exciting if it flew off its perch on that building and swooped down on us and gouged out our eyes with its sharp talons? Not that I want to have my eyes gouged out, mind you. I like my eyes. I couldn't see much without them. Say, Marcus, I think we're lost again. I don't remember going past that butcher. Oh, wait, yes, I do. Can't you keep him quiet, Derek grumbled. Not without cutting out his tongue, Aaron returned. 
Derek seemed to be considering this as a viable option. By this time, however, fortunately for Tass, they had arrived at the Hall of Justice, a large, ugly brick structure. Despite the storm, a crowd had gathered out front, some of them shouting for the detested Salomnik to quit skulking about behind the Lord's skirts and show himself. These people truly hate us, said Derek. You can't really blame them, said Marcus. They were the ones who turned on us, returned Derek. Many Salomniks died in this city after the cataclysm at the hands of the mobs. That was a tragedy, Marcus admitted. And after the riot was over, some of the people here were genuinely ashamed of themselves. The Tarsians sent a delegation to Salomnia to try to make peace. Did you know that? Derek shook his head. Their overtures were rebuffed. They were not even permitted to leave their ship to set foot on Salomnic soil. If the Salomniks had been forgiving to those who wronged them, as the measure states they should, Marcus added with a sidelong glance at Derek, the knights would have been welcomed back to Tarsus, and perhaps the city might not find itself about to be attacked by the dragon army. Much of Salomnia is now in the hands of the enemy, said Derek. Yes, I know, Marcus replied. My parents live in Vingard. I have not heard from them in a long time. The knights were silent a moment. Then Brian asked quietly, You are from Salomnia, then? I am, said Marcus. I am one of the pathetics, as the Kender terms us. He smiled through the snow at Tasselhoff. I was sent here with Lilith and several others to protect the library. There's no way you can protect it, said Brian, suddenly and unreasonably angry at the man. Not from the dragon armies, the library's safely hidden. You and Lilith should just lock it up and leave it. You're putting your lives in danger over a few books. He paused, flushing. He had not meant to speak with such passion. They were all staring at him in astonishment. Marcus was gentle, sympathetic, but resolute. You forget, Sir Knight, that our God is with us. Gillian will not leave us to fight alone, if fight we must. Wait here a moment. I see one of my colleagues. I'll go ask him what's going on. He hastened through the snow to speak to a man who had just come out of the hall. After a moment's conference, Marcus came hurrying back. Your friends are going to be taken to prison. I hope it's a nice prison, Tasselhoff said to no one in particular. Some are and some aren't, you know. I've never been in the Tarsus jail before, so I haven't any idea. Silence, Burfoot, Derek ordered peremptorily. Aaron, put that damn flask away. Tasselhoff opened his mouth to give the knight a piece of his mind, but he sucked in a gigantic clump of snowflakes and spent the next few moments trying to cough them back up. The constable won't risk bringing them within sight of this mob, Marcus continued, not after what happened when he tried to arrest them. He'll take them round by an alley in the back. Luck is on our side for once, said Derek. Not luck, said Marcus gravely. Gillian favors us with his blessing. Hurry. This way. Perhaps it was Gillian who choked the kinder, suggested Aaron. He had put the flask back in his belt and was patting the coughing Tasselhoff on the back. If he did, I may become his disciple, said Derek. Marcus led them around the side of the hall to an alleyway that ran behind the building. As if the storm delighted in playing tricks, the snow shower ended and sunlight sparkled on the new-fallen snow. 
Then more clouds scudded across the sky, and the sun began to play at peekaboo, ducking in and out of the snow showers, so that one moment the sun shone brightly, and the next snow was falling. The building cast a shadow over the alley that was dark and gloomy. Just as they entered it, Brian saw two cloaked and hooded figures detach themselves from the wall at the far end and walk off in the opposite direction. Look there, he said, pointing. Draconians, said Aaron, sneaking a drink when Derek wasn't looking. They're dressed exactly like those who stopped us at the bridge. Do you think they saw us? I doubt it. We're in shadow. I wouldn't have seen them, but they walked into the sunlight. I wonder why they left so quickly. Hush, this must be them, Marcus warned. A door opened, and they could hear voices. Take the kender, Derek told Marcus. Tasselhoff tried to insist they would need his help in the upcoming battle, but Marcus clapped his hand over Tass's mouth, and that ended that. The constable emerged from the hall. He was leading five prisoners, one of whom they were astonished to see was a woman. Three guards marched alongside. Brian recognized Sturm walking protectively near the woman, and they had been told correctly. Sturm was indeed wearing a breastplate on which was engraved the Rose and the Kingfisher, symbols of the knights. Whatever Derek might say of Sturm Brightblade, Brian had always found the man to be the personification of a Salomnic knight, gallant, courageous, and noble, which made it strange that Sturm would do something so dishonorable as to lie about being a knight, wear armor he had no right to wear. Brian drew his sword, sliding it slowly and silently from its sheath. His friends had their weapons in hand. Marcus drew the muzzled kender back further into the shadows. The door slammed shut behind the prisoners. The constable marched them down the alleyway. Brian saw Sturm exchanging glances with one of the other prisoners, and he guessed that they were going to try to make a break for freedom. I'll take the constable, said Derek. You take the other guards. The constable could hear the shouts of the mob in the front of the building, but he believed they were safe in the alley. He wasn't looking for trouble, and consequently wasn't keeping a very good watch. The first he knew of trouble was when he caught a flash of steel. Seeing three cloaked figures rushing toward him, he put his whistle to his lips to sound the alarm. Derek clubbed him with the hilt of his sword, knocking the man unconscious before he could summon help. Aaron and Brian menaced the three guards with their swords, and they ran off down the alleyway. The knights turned to the prisoners, who were blinking in astonishment at their sudden rescue. Who are you? demanded the half-elf. Brian regarded the man curiously. He was tall and muscular, clad in leather and furs, and he wore a beard, perhaps to conceal his elf features, though they weren't that noticeable that Brian could see, except for his pointed ears. He appeared no older than his mid-thirties, but the expression in his eyes was that of someone who has lived long in the world, someone who knew life's sorrows as well as its joys. Of course, the elf blood in him would give him a lifespan far longer than most humans. Brian wondered how old he really was. Have we escaped one danger, only to find a worse? The half-elf demanded. Unmask yourselves. It wasn't until that moment that Brian realized they must look more like assassins than saviors. He pulled down his scarf, turned to Sturm, and spoke swiftly in Salamnic. Oath Sarthan Iparan. Meaning... Our meeting is in friendship. Sturm had placed himself in front of the female prisoner, keeping her protectively behind him, shielding her with his body. The woman was heavily veiled and wore a thick cloak so that Brian could gain no clear impression of her. 
She moved with flowing grace, and her hand, resting on the knight's arm, was remarkable for its delicacy and alabaster purity. Sturm gasped in recognition. Est sarthai en paranath, he replied, meaning, My companions are your friends. He added in common, These men are knights of Salamnia. The half-elf and the dwarf both looked at them suspiciously. Knights? Why? There is no time for explanation, Sturm Brightblade, Derek told him, speaking in common out of politeness, since he assumed the others could not speak Salamnic. The guards will return soon. Come with us. Not so fast, stated the dwarf. He was an elder dwarf, to judge by the gray in his long beard, and like most dwarves Brian had known, he appeared to be irascible, obstinate, and headstrong. He snatched up a halberd one of the guards had let fall, and grasping it in his large, strong hands, he slammed it down on his bent knee, snapping off the handle so that he could wield it more easily. You'll find time for explanations or I'm not going, the dwarf told them. How do you know the knight's name, and how came you to be waiting for us? Tasselhoff had, by this time, managed to escape Marcus's grasp. Oh, just run him through, the kender cried cheerfully. Leave his body to feed the crows. Not that they'll bother. There's few in the world who can stomach dwarf. The half-elf relaxed and smiled. He turned to the red-faced dwarf. Satisfied? Some day I'll kill that kender, the dwarf muttered into his beard. All this time, Sturm had been staring hard at Derek, who had removed his scarf from his face. Bright blade, Derek acknowledged coldly. Sturm's lips tightened, his face darkened, and his hand clenched over the hilt of his sword. Brian tensed, foreseeing trouble, but then Sturm glanced at those with him, especially at the veiled woman. Brian could guess what Sturm was thinking. Had he been alone, he would have refused to accept any aid from the man who had publicly insulted him and his family. My lord, said Sturm, his voice equally cold. He did not bow. If either had been going to say more, they were cut off by the sound of whistles and shouts heading in their direction. The guards, this way, called Marcus. Sturm's friends looked to him and he gave a nod. Marcus led them into a maze of streets and alleyways that twisted and turned back in on themselves like a drunken serpent. They soon lost the guards, and when they could no longer hear the whistles, deemed they were safe from pursuit and slowed their pace to mingle with the people in the street. Are you glad I rescued you, Flint? asked Tasselhoff, walking alongside the scowling dwarf. No, he answered, glowering. And you didn't rescue me, you doorknob. These knights did. He cast Brian, who was keeping near the kender, a grudgingly grateful glance. Tasselhoff grinned and winked conspiratorially at Brian, then said, That's a fine halberd you have there, Flint. Flint had been about to toss away the broken weapon, but at the kender's teasing, he held on to it firmly. It suits my purpose, he said, and besides, it's not a halberd, it's a hauberk. No, it isn't, Tasselhoff gave a smothered giggle. A hauberk's a shirt made of chain mail, like the one Sir Brian is wearing. A halberd's a weapon. Flint snorted. What would a kender know about weapons? He shook it at Tasselhoff, who was now so overcome with laughter, he was having difficulty keeping up with his friends. This is a hauberk. Oh, yes, just like that helm you're wearing has the mane of a griffin. All of us know it's horsehair, Tasselhoff retorted. Flint was already red in the face and puffing from the running. 
At this accusation, he went purple. He put his hand to the white tail that dangled down from his helm. It is not. Horsehair makes me sneeze. This is the mane of a griffin. But griffins don't have manes, Tasselhoff protested, skipping alongside the dwarf, pouches bouncing and spilling their contents. Griffins have an eagle's head and a lion's body, not the other way around. Just like that's a halberd, not a hauberk. Is this or is this not a hauberk? Flint demanded. He shoved his weapon practically in Sturm's nose. That is what we knights know as a halberd, said Sturm, moving the point away from the mysterious woman, who continued to hold onto his arm. Tasselhoff gave a whoop of triumph. However, Sturm added diplomatically, seeing Flint look chagrined, I believe the Thawar dwarves have a word for halberd that sounds similar to hauberk. Perhaps that is what you were thinking, Flint. That's true, stated Flint, his dignity upheld. I uh, can't rightly recall the word right at this moment, not being fluent in Thawar. You understand. But it sounds like hauberk, which is what I meant. Tasselhoff grinned and seemed about to comment, but the half-elf, exchanging smiles with Sturm, put an end to the discussion by seizing hold of the kender and hustling him up to the front of the group so fast that his boots skimmed the street. Brian was impressed by the good fellowship among this oddly assorted group of friends. He was particularly impressed with Sturm. He kept fast hold of the woman he had taken under his protection, and though clearly concerned with her, he had the patience to end the argument between the kender and the dwarf while managing to maintain the dwarf's dignity. As if aware of what Brian was thinking, Sturm met his eye and gave a half-smile and a slight shrug of the shoulders. They continued moving through the side streets, avoiding the major roads. Tannis Half-Elven had hold of the kender and was keeping hold of him. The kender wriggled and squirmed in his friend's grasp, his shrill voice raised in pleading. Whatever Tass wanted, Tannis was obviously having none of it. They came to the marketplace and here they would have to leave the side streets and move out into the open, taking the main road that led to the library. A few guards could be seen searching for them, but finding a handful of people amidst the throng of shoppers was going to be difficult, and the guards were obviously not all that interested in capturing the escaped prisoners. Brian recalled Lilith saying that something was wrong in this city. The guards apparently thought so, for they looked dour and unhappy. Ordinary citizens were still going about their business, but now that he paid attention, he saw people huddling together in knots, talking in hushed voices, and glancing nervously over their shoulders. Sturm and the others kept their heads down, their eyes lowered, and did nothing to call attention to themselves. Obviously, they've been in tense situations like this before, Brian realized. The half-elf even managed to squelch the kender. They made their way safely through the market and came at last to the road that led to the old part of the city and the library. Here Tannis called a halt. Kender in tow, he came to speak to the knights. I thank you, sirs, for helping us, Tannis said. We must take our leave of you. We have friends in the Red Dragon Inn who have no idea what has happened. You can't, Tannis, Tasselhoff cried. I keep telling you, you have to come to the library to look at what I've found. It's really, really important. Tass, I don't need to see another petrified frog, Tannis said impatiently. We have to go back to tell Lorana. Oh, tell Lorana, 
Tasselhoff said through a smothered giggle. And Raislin, Caraman, and the others, that we are safe, Tannis continued. The last they saw of us, we were being taken off to prison. They will be worried. He held out his hand. Sir Derek, thank you. Taz took advantage of his friend's distraction to give a wrench and a leap, and managed to twist himself out of Tannis's grasp. Derek made a grab for the kender, but he missed, and Taz ran off down the alleyway. I'll meet you in the library, Taz called over his shoulder, waving his hand. The knight's nowhere. I'll go fetch him, Flint offered, though he was so winded he stood doubled over, his hands on his knees. He seemed to be having difficulty breathing. No, said Tannis. We're already split in two. I won't have us going off in three directions. We keep together. Marcus volunteered to go after him, and he set off in pursuit. I say, leave the kender, and good riddance, stated Flint. Actually, he has found something of vital importance, said Derek. I think you should come see what we have discovered. Brian and Aaron exchanged startled glances. What are you doing? Aaron asked Derek, drawing him to one side. I thought this dragon orb was a secret. I'm going to need the half-elf's cooperation, Derek said in a low voice. I intend to take the kender with us to Ice Reach. You're joking, Aaron exclaimed, horrified. I never joke, said Derek sternly. He's the only one who can translate these magical writings for us. We will need him. He won't go, said Brian. He won't leave his friends. Then Brightblade must persuade him, or better yet, I will order Brightblade to accompany us. He's not a knight, Derek, as you keep reminding us, said Brian. He doesn't have to obey your orders. He will, unless he wants me to tell his friends the truth, said Derek harshly. He can make himself useful on the journey, minding the horses and the kender. They had kept their voices low, but Sturm must have heard his name mentioned, for he looked over at them to see Derek's disapproving gaze fixed on his breastplate. Sturm flushed, then turned away. Derek, don't do this, Brian begged his friend silently. Just let it be. Let them go their way and we'll go ours. He had the unhappy feeling that wasn't going to happen. Come with us, Brightblade. Derek called, making it sound like an order. The half-elf and the dwarf exchanged troubled glances, then both looked at Sturm, who had not heard, for he was talking in low and reassuring tones to the veiled woman. Mark my words, this isn't going to end well, the dwarf predicted, and it's all the fault of that rattle-brained kender. The half-elf gave a deep sigh and nodded his head in gloomy agreement. They don't know the half of it, Aaron remarked. He took out his flask, hefted it, found it was empty. He shook it. Nothing came out. Great, he muttered. Now I have to put up with Derek while I'm sober. 7. A Last Kiss, Fire and Blood The knights and their newfound companions arrived back at the library without incident. Marcus had returned to report that Tass was safely back at the library, regaling Lilith with his tale of how they had fought off six hundred Tarzian guards and a wandering giant. Brian, said Derek, before we enter the library, go fetch Brightblade. Tell him I want to speak with him. Brian sighed deeply, but went to do as he was told. Sturm Brightblade came of an honored family, and he had the backing of Lord Gunther, who was an old and valued friend of the family. When Sturm had asked that he be considered for knighthood, Lord Gunther had supported the young man, 
It was Derek who had opposed Sturm's nomination to enter the knighthood on various grounds. Sturm had not been raised in Salomnia. He had been raised by his mother, his father having been absent during his formative years. Sturm was not properly educated. He had not served as a squire to a knight, and most damning, Derek had hinted that Sturm's parentage was subject to question. Fortunately, Sturm had not been present to hear all that Derek had said about him and his family, or there would have been bloodshed in the council hall. As it was, Lord Gunther had answered the charges, arguing vehemently in favor of his young friend, but Derek's charges had been enough to sink Sturm's candidacy. Rumor had it that when Sturm heard rumors of what Derek had said, the young man had tried to challenge Derek to a contest of honor. That was not possible, however. A mere nobody, such as Sturm Brightblade, could not challenge a Lord Knight of the Rose to mortal combat. Feeling himself disgraced, Sturm had determined to leave Salomnia. In vain, Lord Gunther had tried to persuade Sturm to remain. Gunther urged him to wait a year, and his name could be submitted again. In the meantime, Sturm could refute Derek's charges. Sturm refused. He left Salomnia shortly after, taking with him his inheritance, his father's sword and armor, part of which he was now wearing, though he had no right to do so. Two proud and stubborn men, Brian thought, both at fault. We need to talk to you, Sturm, said Brian, in private. Perhaps the lady would like to take some time to rest, he concluded awkwardly. Sturm escorted the veiled woman to a stone bench near what had once been a marble fountain. He gallantly brushed off the snow, removed his cloak, and spread it out on the bench, then graciously assisted her to seat herself. The true elf, whose name was Gilthanus, had not spoken a word to any of them this entire time. He sat protectively beside the woman. Tanis stood fidgeting, looking about. He nodded in acquiescence when Sturm told him he was going to speak with his friends. Derek led the way to a place where they could talk in private and not be overheard. Brian, who had the dread feeling he knew what was coming, found a chance to say a quick word to Sturm, holding him back when he would have followed Derek. I just wanted to tell you I'm sorry for what happened to you in regard to the knighthood. Derek's my friend, and there's no man I love and honor more. Brian smiled ruefully. But he can be a horse's rear end sometimes. Sturm made no reply. He kept his gaze fixed on the ground. His face was dark with anger. All of us have our failings, Brian continued. If Derek would ever take off his armor, we'd find a human being underneath. But he can't take off that armor, Sturm. He's just not made that way. He expects perfection of everyone, especially himself. Sturm seemed to soften at this. He looked less grim. When the dragon armies overran Castle Crownguard, Brian continued, a dragon killed his younger brother, Edwin. That is, we assume he is dead. He paused a moment, thinking back to that terrible time, and said quietly, We hope he is dead. Derek's wife and child are now forced to reside with her father because Derek cannot provide a house to shelter her. How must any man feel about that, especially a man as proud as Derek? He has nothing left except the knighthood, this quest of his, Brian sighed, and his pride. Remember that, Sturm, and forgive him if you can. Having said this, Brian walked away, lest Derek should suspect he'd said anything. 
Sturm was silent, stiff, and formal when he joined Derek. Aaron, peering over Derek's helm, looked at Brian and lifted his eyebrows in a question. Brian could only shake his head. He had no idea what Derek was doing. Right, Blade, said Derek abruptly. We have had our differences in the past. Sturm's body trembled, his hands clenched. He said nothing, but gave a stiff nod in acknowledgment. I remind you that according to the measure, in time of warfare, all personal animosities must be set aside. I am willing to do so, Derek added, if you are. I prove it by taking you into our confidence. I'm going to reveal to you the nature of our quest. Brian was astonished, as all of a sudden he realized what Derek was doing. He felt himself growing so angry he had to choke back the harsh words. Derek was being conciliatory to Sturm because he needed the kender. Sturm hesitated, then gave a great sigh, as though letting go a heavy burden, and said quietly, I am honored by your trust, my lord. You have leave to tell your friends of our mission, Derek said, but this must go no further. I understand, said Sturm. I answer for their honor as for my own. Considering that he was speaking for outlandish folk, such as dwarves and half-elves, Derek raised an eyebrow at this, but he let it go. He needed the kender. Derek was about to proceed when Aaron interrupted. Is it true you killed a dragon high lord in Paxtharkas? he asked with interest. My friends and I assisted in a slave uprising in Paxtharkas that resulted in the death of the high lord, Sturm replied. Aaron was impressed. No need to be modest, Brightblade. You must have had more to do with it than that, for your name to be on the High Lord's bounty list. Is it? Sturm asked, startled. It is. Your name and those of your companions. Show him, Brian. We can do that another time. We have more important matters to discuss now, said Derek, casting Aaron an irate glance. We have been sent by the Knights Council to find and bring back to Sandcrist a valuable artifact called a Dragon Orb. We heard rumors that this orb might be found in Ice Reach, and we have stopped here at the ancient library to try to gain more information. The Kender has been of valuable assistance to us in this. Sturm smoothed his mustaches, embarrassed and uneasy. I do not like to speak ill of anyone, my lords, especially Tasselhoff whom I have known for many years and whom I consider a friend. Derek frowned at the thought of anyone considering a kender a friend, but fortunately Sturm didn't notice. You should be aware, however, that Tass, while a very good-hearted person, is known to sometimes, uh, fabricate. If you are trying to say that the kender is a little liar, I'm aware of that, stated Derek impatiently. The kender is not lying now. We have proof of the veracity of his claims. I think you and your friends should come see for yourselves. If Tasselhoff has been able to help you, I'm glad. I'm sure Tannis will want to speak to him, Sturm added wryly. Now, if there is nothing more to discuss. Just one thing. Who is the woman in the veil? Brian asked curiously, glancing over his shoulder. The woman was still seated on a bench, speaking to the true elf and the half-elf. The dwarf stumped about nearby. Lady Alhanna, daughter of the King of Sylvanesti, Sturm answered. His gaze warmed as it fell upon her. Sylvanesti, Aaron repeated, amazed. She is far from home. What is a Sylvanesti elf doing in Tarsus? 
The reach of the Dark Queen is long, said Sturm gravely. The dragon armies are about to invade her homeland. The lady has risked her life to travel to Tarsus in search of mercenaries to help the elves fight off their foes. It was for that she was arrested. Mercenaries are not welcome in this city, nor are those who seek to hire them. Do you mean to say the dragon armies have moved so far south that they threaten to attack Sylvanesti? asked Brian, aghast. So it would seem, my lord, Sturm replied. He glanced at Derek and said in tones of sympathy and regret, I hear war has come to Salamnia as well. Castle Crownguard fell to the dragon armies, as did Vingard, said Derek stolidly, and all the realm to the east. Palanthus yet stands, as does the High Clarist's Tower, but the fiends may launch an attack at any moment. I am sorry, my lord, said Sturm earnestly, and he looked Derek in the eye for the first time. Truly sorry. We do not need sympathy. What we need is the power to drive these butchers from our homeland, Derek replied harshly. That is why this dragon orb is of such vital importance. According to the Kender, it confers upon the one who masters it the ability to control dragons. If that is true, it would indeed be good news for all of us who fight for the cause of freedom, Sturm said. I will go inform my friends. He walked off to speak to the half-elf. Now I suppose we must be civil to these people, said Derek dourly, and bracing himself, he went to join Sturm. Aaron stared after him. You know what he's doing, don't you, Brian? He's being nice to Brightblade, so he will help us keep hold of the Kender. Otherwise Derek wouldn't give Sturm the back of his hand. Maybe, Brian admitted. Though to do him justice, I honestly believe Derek doesn't think of it like that. In his mind, he's doing this for Salamnia. Aaron tugged on his mustaches. You're a good friend to him, Brian. I wish he deserved you. He started to reach for his flask, then remembered it was empty, and with a sigh sauntered off to make the acquaintance of Sturm Brightblade's regrettable friends. As it turned out, one was not so regrettable, not even to Derek, who felt no reduction of his dignity upon being introduced to the Lady Alhanna. The Salamniks had not been ruled by a king for many centuries, but the knights were still respectful of royalty and charmed by it, especially by such surpassingly beautiful royalty as Alhanna Starbreeze. They proceeded to the library, where they found the Kender perusing books with magical glasses, the half-elf, who had been presented to them as Tannis half-elven, was inclined to be severe with Tass for running off, but eventually Tannis relented when it appeared that Tasselhoff was actually able to read the ancient texts and was not making it all up. While the knights and the kender and his friends were talking, Brian slipped away to go in search of Lilith. He had been disappointed to find on his return that she had left upon some errand. He went back to the entrance and found Marcus peering nervously up the stairs. There's a bad feeling in the air, he said. Do you notice? Brian remembered Aaron saying the same thing not so long ago. Now that Marcus had called his attention to it, Brian did feel ill at ease. As Aaron had said, it was as though someone were walking across his grave. Where's Lilith? Brian asked. She's praying in our chapel, Marcus replied. He indicated a room off to one side of the main entrance. Another door, marked with the book and the scales, stood partway ajar. Brian was startled by this, 
He didn't know what to do. It's just, we might be leaving soon. I wanted to see her. You can go in, Marcus said, smiling. I wouldn't want to interrupt. It's all right. Brian hesitated. Then he walked over and gently pushed on the door. The chapel was quite small, large enough for only a few people at a time. At the far end was an altar. On the altar lay an open book, and beside it was a scale of balance, perfectly poised, so that both sides were equal. Lilith was not kneeling, as Brian had half expected. She sat cross-legged before the altar, very much at her ease. She was speaking in a low voice, but it did not seem that she was praying so much as holding a conversation with her god, for she would occasionally emphasize a point with a gesture. Brian opened the door a little farther, intending to slip into the back of the room, but the door hinges creaked. Lilith turned around and smiled at him. I'm sorry, Brian said. I didn't mean to disturb you. Gillian and I were just talking, she said. You speak of him as though he were a friend, said Brian. He is, said Lilith, rising to her feet. Her dimple flashed. But he's a god. At least you believe he is a god, said Brian. I respect and revere him as a god, Lilith answered. But when I come to him, he makes me feel welcome as if I were visiting an old friend. Brian glanced down at the altar, trying to think of some way to change the subject, which made him uncomfortable. He looked at the book, thinking it must be some holy text, and said in astonishment, The pages of the book are blank. Why is that? to remind us that our lives are made up of blank sheets waiting to be filled, Lilith replied. The book of life is open when we are born, and it closes with our death. We write in it continually, but no matter how much we write, what joy or sorrow we experience, or what mistakes we have made, we will always turn the page, and tomorrow's page is always blank. Some people might find that prospect daunting, said Brian somberly looking down at the page, so starkly white and empty. I find it filled with hope, said Lilith. She moved close to him. He took hold of her hands and clasped them in his own. I know what I want to write on tomorrow's page. I want to write my love for you. Then let us write it on today's page, said Lilith softly. We will not wait for tomorrow. A small cut crystal jar filled with ink stood on the altar, Beside it was a feather pen. Lilith dipped the quill in the ink, and then, half serious and half laughing, she drew a heart on the page, as might a child, and wrote his name, Brian, inside the heart. Brian picked up the pen and was going to write her name, but he was interrupted by the sound of horn calls coming from outside the library. Though the horns were distant, far away, still he recognized them. His stomach clenched, his heart thudded, his hand jerked and dropped the pen that had been forming the letter L. He turned toward the door. What is that dreadful noise? Lilith gasped. The blaring noise was growing louder by the moment. She grimaced at the discordant, raucous blaring. What is it? she asked urgently. What does it mean? The dragon armies, said Brian, striving to be calm for her sake. What we feared has happened. Tarsus is under attack. He and Lilith looked at each other. This was the moment they must part, he to his duty, she to hers. They gave each other the gift of a precious moment, a moment to cling to each other, a moment to memorize a loved face, a moment they would each hold in the coming darkness. Then they let go.
each turning away. Marcus, Lilith called, running out of the chapel. Fetch the aesthetics. Bring them here. Derek, Brian shouted. The dragon armies. I'm going out to take a look. He was about to race up the stairs when he heard raised voices coming from the library's interior. Brian groaned inwardly. He could guess what was going on. He turned from the stairs and made his way among the bookshelves, moving as rapidly as possible, hoping to head off a dispute. Where do you think you're going, Kender? Derek could be heard shouting. With Tannis, Tass yelled back, sounding amazed at the question. You're knights. You can get along fine without me, but my friends need me. We offer you our protection, Half-Elven, Derek was saying as Brian arrived. Are you turning that down? I thank you, Sir Knight. Tannis replied, but as I told you, we cannot go with you. We have friends in the Red Dragon. We must return to them. Bring the Kender, Sturm, Derek ordered, and come with us. I cannot, sir, Sturm replied. He rested his hand on the half-elf's shoulder. He is my leader, and my first loyalty is to my friends. Derek was incensed that Sturm Brightblade, a Salomnik, would have the temerity to refuse a direct order from a knight who was his superior by birth, and to add insult to injury, instead proudly proclaimed that he obeyed the orders of some half-breed elf. Tannis understood. He started to say something, perhaps to try to assuage Derek's ire, but Derek intervened. If that is your decision, I cannot stop you, Derek said, cold with anger. But this is another black mark against you, Sturm Brightblade. Remember that you are not a knight, not yet. Pray that I am not there when the question of your knighthood comes before the council. Sturm went livid. He cast a conscience-stricken look at the half-elf, who appeared considerably astonished. What did he say? The dwarf demanded. The knight's not a knight? Leave it, Flint, said Tannis quietly. It doesn't matter. Well, of course it doesn't matter. Flint shook his fist under Derek's nose. We're glad he's not one of you stuck-up steel-for-brains knights. It would serve you right if we did leave you with the kender. Tannis, Sturm said in low tones, I can explain. There's no time for explanations. Tannis was shouting in his urgency. Listen, they're coming closer. Gentlemen, I wish you success. Sturm, see to the Lady Alhana. Tasselhoff, you're coming with me. Tannis laid firm hands on the kender. If we get separated, we'll meet at the Red Dragon Inn. The horn calls were coming closer. Tannis managed to marshal his friends together, and they hurried off, following the Kender, who knew the path through the bookshelves. Derek glared at the books piled on the table, in frustration. There were a number not yet studied. At least we know there's an orb in Ice Reach, and we know what it does, Aaron pointed out. Now let's get out of this city before all hell breaks loose. The horses are stabled near the main gate. We can escape in the confusion, Brian added. We need that kender, Derek stated. Derek, be reasonable, Aaron said. But Derek was unpacking his armor and refused to heed them. The time for disguising themselves was past. They might have to fight their way out of the city, and Aaron and Derek buckled on their breastplates over chain mail and put on their helms. Brian, who had lost his armor when his horse ran off, had to make do with his leather. They sorted through their gear, took only what they deemed necessary, and left the rest behind. They made their way among the books, back to the entrance. I thank you for your assistance, mistress, Derek said to Lilith, who was keeping guard on the door. How do we find the Red Dragon Inn? Lilith stared at him in astonishment. 
This is a strange time to go inquiring for a room, sir. Please, mistress, we don't have much time, Derek stated. Lilith shrugged. Go back to the center of the city. The inn's not far from the Hall of Justice. You go on ahead, said Brian to the others. I'll catch up. Derek cast him an annoyed glance but made no comment. Aaron grinned at Brian and winked. Then he and Derek dashed up the stairs. Brian turned to Lilith. Shut and seal the door. They won't find it. I will, she said. Her voice trembled a little, but she was composed and even managed a smile. I'm waiting for the other aesthetics to come. We've laid in supplies. We'll be safe. Draconians are not interested in books. No, thought Brian, despairing. They're only interested in killing. He gave her a last, lingering kiss. Then, hearing Derek bellowing, he tore himself away from her and ran after his friends. May the gods of light watch over you, she called after him. Brian glanced back over his shoulder and waved his hand in farewell. The last he saw of her, she was smiling and waving. Then a shadow passed overhead, blotting out the sun. Brian looked up to see the red wings and enormous red body of a dragon. The dragon fear swept over him, crushing hope and rending courage. His sword arm faltered. He staggered as he ran, barely able to breathe for the terror that seemed to darken everything around him. The dragon armies had not come to conquer Tarsus. They had come to destroy it. Brian fought against the fear that twisted inside him so that he was nearly physically ill. He wondered if Derek and Aaron were watching him, a witness to his weakness, and pride and anger bolstered him. He kept running. The red monster flew by, heading toward those sections of Tarsus where panic-stricken people were thronging into the streets. Brian found Aaron and Derek sheltered in the shadows of a crumbling doorway. More red dragons came, their wings filling the skies. The knights heard the roaring of the monstrous beasts, saw them wheel and dive down upon their helpless victims, breathing great gouts of fire that incinerated everything and everyone it touched. Smoke began to rise as buildings exploded into flame. Even from this distance they could hear the horrible screams of the dying. Aaron had gone ashen. Derek maintained his stern composure, but only by great effort. He had to lick his lips twice before he could speak. We're going to the inn. They all ducked involuntarily as a red dragon flew overhead, his belly skimming the treetops. Had the dragon looked down, he would have seen them. But the beast's fierce eyes were staring hungrily ahead. He was eager to join in the slaughter. Derek, that's madness, Aaron hissed. Sweat beaded his lip beneath his helm. The dragon orb is what's important. Forget the damn kender. He pointed to the thickening coils of black smoke. Look at that. We might as well march into the abyss. Derek gave him a cold look. I'm going to the inn. If you're afraid, I'll meet you back at our campsite. He started off, running down the street, dodging from one shelter to another, diving from a doorway to a grove of trees to a building, trying to avoid attracting the attention of the dragons. Brian looked helplessly at Aaron, who flung up his hands in exasperation. I suppose we'll have to go with him. At least maybe we can keep the idiot from getting himself killed. Book Three One. The Red Dragon Inn. The Chase. Upon leaving Ice Reach, Kitiara and Skye had met up with her force of blue dragons and her Sivak Draconian guards, 
who had been loitering about on the outskirts of Thorbarden, keeping watch on the dwarven kingdom to see if those on the bounty list turned up. Kit had a good excuse for going to Tarsus. Ariacus had recently promoted Fewmaster Toad to the position of Dragon High Lord of the Red Wing, though on a temporary basis. Kittyara could tell the Emperor she had gone to view the battle brewing there to see how the Hobgoblin conducted himself. The Blue Dragons had heard about the possibility of an attack on the city and were eager to get in on the fighting. Skye was the only dragon who was not pleased at the prospect, and this was because he knew the truth. Kittyara wasn't going to Tarsus to fight or to evaluate the Hobgoblin. She was going for her own personal reasons. She'd told him as much. Sky revered Kittyara as few dragons in the history of Kryn had revered a human. He honored Kittyara's courage. He could personally attest to her skill and her intelligence when it came to warfare. He credited her tactics and strategy with having conquered much of Salamnia, and he was convinced that if Kittyara had been in charge of the war instead of Ariacus, they would have now been taking their ease in the conquered city of Palanthus. Kittyara was calm and cold-blooded, masterful and courageous in battle, but when it came to her personal life, she gave in to her wayward passions and let desire master her. She went from lover to lover, using them, then discarding them. She thought she was in control of these affairs, but Sky knew better. Kittyara thirsted for love as some thirst for dwarf spirits. She hungered for it as a glutton does his dinner. She needed men to adore her and even when she no longer loved them, they were supposed to continue to love her. Ariacus was perhaps the sole exception, and that was because Kittyara had let him love her simply to achieve advancement. They understood each other, probably because they were alike. He required of women what Kit required of men. He was the only man Kittyara feared, and she was the only woman to daunt Ariacus. Take this Bacarus, Sky thought, Kittyara's sub-commander and her current lover. Charming, handsome, he was an adequate soldier, but certainly not her equal. Left to his own devices in Salamnia, which is where he was now, he'd make a pig's breakfast of the battle should they be called upon to fight. Sky only hoped that this foray into the south didn't keep her away from the war too long. Sky didn't know the identity of the man she was chasing after in Tarsus. She hadn't told him that. All he knew was that it was someone she had known in her youth. Skye was confident it would be only a matter of time before Kit told him everything. He was the one being she trusted implicitly. Let her find this long-lost lover, whoever he was, Skye thought, and get him out of her system. Then she could get back to business. They established their headquarters outside the city, near a hot springs Skye had discovered. Kittyara sent spies armed with Toad's bounty list to Tarsus and other cities in the region, and also sent search parties with orders to keep an eye on the major trade routes. Although the snow hampered their efforts considerably, one of the search parties did come across something, though not what Kit had expected. Why haven't Rag and his Baz reported in? Kittyara asked the Sivak commander of her squad of draconians. The Sivak had no idea and he sent a patrol on Dragonback to find out. They returned with unfortunate news. Rag and his men are dead, my lord, the Sivak reported. We found what was left of them near a bridge south of Tarsus. 
The tracks in the snow indicated three men riding horses. They were on the road leading from Riggett. One of the horses apparently bolted, for its tracks ran off back to the south. Two horses left the bridge together, traveling west, leaving the road and cutting across country. We found the runaway horse wandering about the plains, the Sivak added, and on it was this. He held up a bracer decorated with the kingfisher and the rose. Salomnic knights, Kitiara muttered irritably. She shuffled through reports from her other spies, searching for one of them in particular. The knight, Derek Crownguard, traveling with two fellow knights, arrived in Riggett. The three men hired horses, stating they were planning to ride to Tarsus. Son of a bitch, swore Kitiara. Of course it had to have been them. Who else but Salomnic knights would have dispatched draconian warriors so handily? She couldn't believe it. How long have they been dead? she asked. A couple of days, maybe, the Civek replied. Son of a bitch, Kit swore again, this time with more vehemence. So the bridge was left unwatched for days. The felons we are after could have crossed unnoticed, entering Tarsus without our knowledge. We didn't see any other footprints, but we will find them if they did, my lord, the Sivak promised, and that proved to be the case. Those you seek are in Tarsus, my lord, the Sivak reported a day later. They entered the gates this morning, all of them. He pointed to the bounty list. Matches the descriptions perfectly. They are staying in the Red Dragon Inn. Excellent, said Kitiara, rising. Her face was flushed, her eyes glinting with excitement. Summon Sky. I will fly there immediately. There is, um, a slight problem. The Civic gave a deferential cough. <coughs> Some of them have been arrested. What? Kitiara glared at him, hands on her hips. Arrested? Who was the fool who ordered that? The moment she mentioned the word fool, the answer came to her. Toad! Not High Lord Toad in person, the Civek said. He sent a draconian emissary who is conducting the negotiations with the Lord of Tarsus in Toad's name. It seems that one of the gate guards recognized the Salamnic Knights, this Sturm Brightblade, added the Civek, consulting the list. The gate guard told the Lord of Tarsus, who seemed inclined to make nothing of it. The draconian emissary insisted that the guards be sent to bring in the knight and his companions for questioning. I'll wring that hob's neck, Kit said through her teeth. Does this emissary know these people are on this bounty list? I don't think he made the connection, my lord. All he knew was that a Salamnic knight had arrived in the city. The reason I say that is because some of the group were allowed to remain in the inn. The half-elf, the knight, the elf. The dwarf and the kender were the only ones taken into custody. Kitiara relaxed. 
so the half-elf and the others are in prison. The Sivak coughed again. <coughs> no, my lord. By our queen, what else went wrong? Kit demanded. It seems there was a riot, and in the confusion, the Kender disappeared. The others appeared in court, along with another elf, who turned out to be the daughter of King Lorak. They were all being taken off to prison when the guards were attacked by three cloaked men who rescued the prisoners. Don't tell me, said Kit, in a dangerously calm voice. The three men who rescued them were Salomnic knights. It appears so, my lord, said the Sivak after a slight hesitation. My informant overheard them speaking the Salamnic tongue, and the knight, Brightblade, recognized the others. Kittyara slumped back down in her chair. Where are they now? I regret to say the knight and his companions escaped. My men are searching for them. However, the women on the list and the other men, including the wizard and the cleric of Paladine, are still in the inn. At least something has gone right, said Kit, good spirits returning. The half-elf will not abandon these people. They're his friends. He'll be back for them. Keep your spies at the Red Dragon Inn. No, wait, I will go there myself. There's uh, one more problem, my lord, the Sivak said, sidling back a few steps to be out of sword range in case her wrath got the better of her. My lord, Toad has ordered the attack. As we speak, dragons are flying on Tarsus. I told that fool to wait for my signal, Kittyara fumed to Sky as the dragon climbed toward the clouds. She pressed herself close to Sky's body, hunching down low over the dragon's neck so as to add as little possible wind resistance. Taking off was always the most difficult part for the dragons. Even without riders, lifting their ponderous bodies into the air required great strength. Some riders were inconsiderate of their mounts, doing little to aid them, and sometimes actually impeding them. Kitiara understood instinctively how to help Skye, perhaps because she loved flying. When in the air, she and her dragon melded together. She felt almost as if she was the one who had wings. In battle, she knew Skye's every move before he made it, just as he knew by the touch of her knees on his flanks or her hand upon his neck where she wanted to go, always to the fiercest part of the fighting. A flight of blue dragons soared after them, each dragon leaping into the air, following Skye, their leader. This was always a proud moment for him and for her, as he well knew. The Reds will not be pleased to see us. Sky shouted over the rush of cold air. Kitiara remarked what the red dragons could do with themselves, and added a few choice words about what they could do with Toad into the bargain. We are looking for an inn called the Red Dragon, she told Sky. I think you're a little late, he called out. They had just come in sight of Tarsus, or rather what had once been Tarsus. Smoke and flame billowed into the air. Sky's nostrils twitched, and he shook his mane. He enjoyed the stench of destruction, but clouds of thick smoke would make seeing anything on the ground below damn difficult. 
Kitiara had anticipated this, however, and had sent scouts into the city. She and Skye waited at some distance for the scouts to return, the dragon wheeling in easy circles just beyond the clouds of smoke. They had not been waiting long when a wyvern rider came into view, emerging from the pall that covered the doomed city. Sighting the highlord, the wyvern rider changed course and flew over to them in haste. Slow down, Kitiara commanded her dragon. Sky's lip curled in a sneer, but he did as he was ordered. Like most dragons, he detested wyverns. He considered them filthy beasts, a mockery of dragons, with their grotesque bird legs, stunted, scaly bodies, and barbed tails. He glared at the wyvern as it approached, warning it not to come too near. Since the blue dragon could have snapped the wyvern in two with one bite, the wyvern heeded the blue's warning, forcing the civic rider to shout at the top of his lungs to make himself heard. The inn has been hit, my lord. Part of it has collapsed. The Red Wings' troops have it surrounded. The civic draconian gestured. That flight of reds, you see, is going to... Kitiara wasn't about to wait to hear what the Reds were planning to do. Sky understood her need, and he had altered course and was soaring after the Reds before she had given him the command. Return to your post, she shouted at the Sivak, who saluted, and the Wyvern sped thankfully away. Blue dragons are smaller and more maneuverable than the hulking Red dragons. Sky and his Blues easily caught up with the Reds, who were, as Sky had predicted, extremely displeased to see them. The Reds glared balefully at the Blues, who glared just as balefully back. Kitiara and the leader of the Red Wing held a brief mid-air conference, the Red shouting to Kit that he had orders from Toad to kill, not capture the felons if he found them. Kit shouted back that he would be the one killed, not captured, unless he brought the assassins to her alive and well. The commander of the Red Wing knew Kitiara, he also knew Toad. He saluted Kit respectfully and flew off. Locate the inn, Kit ordered Sky and the rest of the Blues. We're searching for three people, remember? A half-elf, a human wizard, and his big, dumb-looking brother. The dragons flew into the smoke, blinking their eyes and keeping sharp watch to make certain no smoldering cinder landed on the vulnerable membranes of their wings. The blues had to be careful, for the reds, drunk with the joy of killing and burning, were heedless and reckless in their flight, swooping down on hapless people trying to escape, breathing flame on them, then watching them run, screaming, hair and clothes on fire, until they collapsed in the street. Paying no attention to where they were going, the reds blundered into buildings, smashing them, knocking them down with their tails. They would also blunder into each other in the smoke and confusion, and Sky and the other blue dragons had to do some fancy maneuvering to avoid collisions. A few jolts of lightning breath helped drive away reds who flew too close. The stench of burnt flesh, the screams of the dying, the rumble of falling towers was nothing new to Kitiara. She paid little heed to anything going on around her, concentrating instead on peering through the smoke into the occasional patch of clear air created by the flapping of Sky's wings. She had scouted out the part of the city in which the inn was located, and she soon spotted it, for it was, or had been, one of the larger buildings in the area. The inn was under attack by draconian forces battling those inside. 
Kit sucked in her breath. She knew perfectly well who was in there, fighting for his life and the lives of his friends. She imagined herself strolling into the inn amidst the smoke, climbing over the rubble, finding Tannis, reaching out her hand to him and saying, Come with me. He'd be astonished, of course. She could picture the look on his face. Griffins! Sky bellowed. Kittyara blinked away her reverie and peered intently through the eye slits of her helm, cursing the smoke, for she couldn't see. Then there they were, a flight of griffins flying low beneath the smoke, coming to the rescue of those trapped in the inn. Kittyara uttered an exclamation of anger. Griffins are ferocious creatures, afraid of nothing, and they fell on the draconians who surrounded the inn, snatching them up in their sharp talons, snapping off their heads with their beaks as an eagle eats a rat. There are elves mixed up in this, Sky snarled. Griffins, though fiercely independent, revere elves, and bonded griffins will serve them if their need is great. Griffins on their own would have never flown into a raging battle, risking their lives to save humans. These griffins were here on orders from some elf lord. Those who had been trapped in the ruins of the inn could be seen clambering onto the backs of the griffins, who wasted no time. Having picked up their passengers, they took off, flying north. Who escaped? Kit cried. Could you see them? Skye was about to answer when a red dragon appeared, barreling through the smoke. Catching sight of the fleeing griffins, the red flew after them, intending to incinerate them. Cut him off, Kittyara ordered. Sky disapproved of Kit involving herself in this fight, but he did enjoy thwarting any red dragon, who, because they were bigger, considered themselves better. Sky swooped in front of the red's nose, forcing the huge dragon to almost flip himself head over tail in order to avoid a crash. Are you mad? the red roared furiously. They're escaping! Kittyara ordered the red to go kill people in some other part of the city and sent her blue dragons off in pursuit of the griffins, reminding them several times that the people the griffins carried were to be taken alive and brought straight back to her. Aren't we going after them? Sky demanded. I need to make sure who they were. I don't want to leave until I find out they were the ones who escaped. I couldn't see them. Could you? She yelled at Sky. Sky had been able to get a good look at them while Kit was arguing with the red dragon. Your wizard and a large human warrior, a human female with red hair, and a man clad in leather. He could have been a half-breed. He looked to be the leader, for he was giving the orders. Oh, and a couple of barbarians. Kittyara asked him sharply, There was no blonde elf woman? No, lord, said Skye, wondering what this had to do with anything. Good. Kittyara said. Maybe she's dead. Then she frowned. What about Flint, Sturm, and the Kender? Tannis would never leave them behind, so maybe that wasn't him on the griffin. What are your orders, Lord? Skye asked impatiently. The dragon was hoping she would think better of this folly and tell him to recall the blues who had gone winging after the griffins. Fast beasts, griffins. They were already nearly out of sight.